Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Majal Dali. And we have an exciting announcement to make at the top of the show before we get into the, you know, crumbling of our democracy, which is that Wajahat is now officially the new co-host of Democracy-ish. And I am so excited, so very excited to have you and to have you as a ride or die for this 2022 <laughs> year that we are in was thank you for inviting me to this uh road to, to hell uh that hopefully we can avoid uh and i love america who would have thought that a son of pakistani immigrants would be co-hosting a podcast with danielle moody mills in the year 2022 but here we are <laughs> trying to save the united states democracy ish and we will try our very best to at the very least keep all of you listeners at home feeling sane that you are not being gaslit or lied to and that what you're witnessing with your own eyes uh, is the truth that our democracy is under assault and how the rest of us can do our part to hopefully save what remains of it and live our lives with some semblance of sanity and joy. Yes, I mean, the joy the, the joy is going to be the difficult part of this. And I, I want to start off, Waj, because this is going up on the anniversary, the first anniversary of the 1-6 uh, insurrection, the attempt to overthrow the government. And many have said since the Capitol went up in smoke, since we, since five officers have been killed, since 150 have been um, abused and tormented, experiencing post-traumatic stress, experiencing, um, you know, physical, mental um, backlash, from what they from this event i want to start off with what are your reflections as as it has been 365 entire days earth days um since this has happened and i don't really feel much movement i don't really feel much accountability and i'm wondering how you feel yeah we didn't plan to have our inaugural episode of 2022 land on the one year anniversary just coincided with it and the, the title of this podcast is Democracy-ish, which when you guys named it was a clever, you know, uh, uh, take on what was happening, you know, Blackish and 
uh, brownish and, and so forth. But now it's literally the United States, according to the latest uh, studies, for the first time ever, is considered a backsliding democracy. For the first time ever, uh, the Swedish think tank idea put us as a backsliding democracy, as democracies are backsliding all across the world. And this is happening with the one-year anniversary of the January 6th uh, insurrection, which was a coup. And my two takeaways are always the following. Number one, January 6th not in the past. It's happening every day. This is a yes. slow-moving coup that the Republicans are openly telling us what they're planning to do. I've used this analogy before, but it makes sense to me. I like Bond movies. They're a bad Bond villain, or rather, I should say, a very efficient and communicative Bond villain, who in the first 10 minutes of the movie are literally telling James Bond with PowerPoints and memos, Hey, James, no need to spend two and a half hours running around the globe. Let me tell you my dastardly plan. And the rest of us are like, but maybe we just need to be more civil and reach out to them. And maybe we need to have bipartisanship. They're like, no, 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 we hate you. We're going to kill you. We're going to assault your school officials and, and healthcare officials. We're going to overtake the Capitol. We're going to threaten violence. We have Oath Keepers and Proud Boys who are told to stand back and stand by. And we got those people now running for office as GOP members. And we got Pete Navarro, who's a member of the Trump administration, just openly admitting to a coup on Ari Melber's show, literally openly you playing the game of taboo. And after he described the plot, saying that 100 congressmen, Republicans, were in on it to literally do a coup, Ari's like, that sounds like a coup. He goes, oh, no, 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 it's not a coup. And so we have literally one of the two major political parties which has become a radicalized, weaponized death cult. The rest of us feel like we're being gaslit as democracy is under assault. And the second thing I always think about, and I can't help thinking about it as a Muslim and a brown person, is that if black and brown folks, God forbid, tried to take over the U.S. Capitol, which resulted in the death of one police officer and then threatened violence against white congressmen, what would happen and I just, I know the answer and you know the answer. And yet here we are a year later and only 70 people have been like convicted. Most of them on probation. We still haven't gotten indictments against Trump and his cronies with all the evidence that's out there with Mark Meadows and the text messages. And Merrick Garland comes out and kind of says, have faith in the process, you know, which was pretty much a middle finger to the rest of us saying, hey, man, hurry the F up. You're about to lose power in less than a year. So that's where I'm feeling. I'm feeling this type of frustration. Uh, at the same time, this anger that this is happening, a relief that they're admitting their plot openly. And I feel like I'm in a bad Twilight Zone episode that the rest of American society and institutions is not taking the threat seriously and the double standard of what would happen if people of color did it. How about you, Daniel? I just, you know, listening to you, Waj, and, you know, having listened to and sat through Merrick Garland's non-press conference, because nothing was announced. Right. There, there was no announcement of a, of a special prosecutor, of an independent counselor that is going to be overseeing a, a really um, high level investigation into the happenings of January 6th. It was the same old platitudes and rhetoric about justice will prevail. It doesn't matter what level you were at. Um, justice moves slow. And it always seems to move slow when we are talking about white Americans. It always seems to move slow. Yeah, it always seems to move slow, you know, and we need to be meticulous and dot all our I's and cross all of our T's when we're talking about wealthy white people. And it's so funny because I don't think that there was any uh, glacial pace when you had Bree Newsom who took down the, the, the Confederate flag, who climbed up and took down the Confederate flag, a symbol, right, of slavery, right? A symbol of, of white supremacy. There was no slow pace in charging her with a federal fr- a crime and tampering with federal property. These people, 
right, are being referred to. I listened on cable news the other day on MSNBC, and they said, oh, you know, these regular Joes were quote unquote swept up, were swept up into extremism. I'm a hundred percent sure, Waj, that if you were at the Capitol building, that they wouldn't say that you had been swept up. You would be forever labeled a terrorist, right? By virtue of your pigmentation. Well, also who's labeled a terrorist, right? Not only would I be labeled a terrorist, they would go after my family. They would go after my community. They would go after all my teachers. They would see my ideological infrastructure, where I got radicalized. The, 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 the label would be extremist, violent Muslim extremist, terrorists overtake the capital, implementation of Sharia. That would be the mainstream narrative because I have the wrong complexion and the wrong religion. And the war on terror is perfectly fine if you're killing brown people, just like the war on drugs is perfectly fine. If you're black folks taking crack, we'll roll up tanks in your neighborhood. And look, I mean, let's not even, we don't have to go back, back to the eighties or even to 20 years ago. Let's just look at five, six years ago, Ferguson. Look at yeah. the, look at the police response to Ferguson, tear gas, tanks. You had folks being shot with rubber bullets. You had folks looking like they were coming out of call of duty, but when it comes to the response that, you know, and, and, and more data and more evidence is being released that police failed at every level. They knew of the threat. And they didn't mobilize the forces to protect their own colleagues who were overrun by this violent insurrection. They weren't poor. The data has come out that these people were middle class and upper middle class. Some people took their private jets, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. To literally overthrow the election. To overthrow the election. Ashley Babbitt, who was radicalized by QAnon, and more information is coming out how she was you know, slowly but surely unhinged and violent. They see her as a martyr. She was trespassing, right? Like if a Muslim was doing that, they'd be like violent extremist shot for trying to overtake the capital. Good. They would never make me into a martyr. I mean, it's just it's it's obscene because when you look at who these people are, right, when you when you just think about extremism, the whole idea is people being radicalized by an ideology, except on cable news right now and just everywhere. It is as if. We are looking at two completely different pictures. I feel like I am trapped inside the matrix. I feel like I am in the documentary, Don't Look Up, where people are telling us, oh, you know, there was a failure of police systems. There was just a breakdown. They were caught off guard. The fact is, and this is according to the New York Times article on January 6th called Capitol Police and the Scars of January 6th that is up right now, where they received emails. They received emails about these threats and they labeled them as bolos. That's what they call it. Be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for. And do you know what the Capitol Police did? They ignored it. You know what the FBI did as people were organizing, as the Boogaloo Boys and the Oath Keepers were all organizing in broad daylight on Facebook, on Instagram, and in their town halls and on Twitter? They said, oh, it's much to do about nothing. And James Baldwin had said that because when white people scream about liberty, the white world sees them as patriots. When anybody that looks like you or I wants to talk about liberty or justice, we are seen as criminals, as menaces to society that need to be handled, right? And made an example of. Well, even, you know, and we have to be honest here, Democrats and Republicans both court uh, whiteness, right? They center everything around whiteness and uh, to placate white rage and to soothe white anxiety. Bill Clinton, in order to win over those white voters who were afraid that he was too liberal, 
I'm old enough to remember who did he attack? Sister Soldier. Sister Soldier became the embodiment of this extremist radical black woman. And he had to scold Sister Soldier, finger wag and be paternalistic and put her in her place. And then white America was placated, right? Because at once he was courting urban America by putting on the shades and playing saxophone on Arsenio Hall. Mm -hmm. I'm dropping some weight. Like so I'm dropping some deep cuts, early 90s references, kids. If you don't know, Google this stuff. Google and, it. And, and then with Biden and um and 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 let's not forget it was Biden, right? With his his uh his crime bill, which created the mandatory yep. minimums, which destroyed communities simply for abusing drugs. Black and brown communities were destroyed for generations to the point where Bill Clinton, I think it was about a year and a half ago, had to apologize for it. But the reason why I'm mentioning it is you can always prove your bona fides on being tough on crime by cracking black and brown skulls. Yeah. You can't do it against white folks. And if you think I'm being crazy and Danielle and I are just like ranting, oh, these darkies are always whining and complaining. Republicans are refusing to acknowledge the number one domestic terror threat in America, which is white supremacist terrorism. There was a whistleblower in the DHS who said the Trump administration yep. deliberately downplayed white supremacist terrorism because they realized it was part of their base and played up Antifa. And for the last 10 or 11 years, we know there was a whistleblower in the DHS, Daryl Johnson, who came out with this 11 years ago and said, this is a threat. This is happening. And they had to bury that report because conservatives said this will make us look bad. And Obama had to play ball to pass, you know, Obamacare and everything else. So here we have the number one domestic terror threat, white supremacist terrorism. We see people who are affiliated with that literally overtake the U.S. Capitol, have it in smokes, hunt down Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. Uh Five people die, including a cop. No one cares about blue lives then. Several cops, like you mentioned, have since died because they took their lives because of the trauma. Yep. And we're a year on, and you got 700 arrests, uh, 700 indictments, 70 convictions, many of them meh. And you literally have Mark Meadows text messages, a six-point memo by John Eastman, a slideshow. You have Ali Alexander, an organizer of the Stop the Steel rally, saying, I planned it with three Republican congressmen, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, and Mo Brooks who wore a Kevlar and no indictments and no convictions. My mind should be my, I should not be upset about it because I, you, you kind of, we should be upset about it, but we should not be surprised. Let me put it that way. This show. From the New Yorker staff writer, Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. 
healthcare workers, providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers, fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. As part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. The midterms are coming and it's more important than ever that we protect and fix our elections. We all know that our government is broken. Politicians spend more time working for themselves, their big donors, and their political party instead of for us. We as Americans have had enough of the corruption, partisan bickering, and gridlock. Look, I get that all the nonsense makes you want to tune out, but I'm here to tell you there's reason for hope. Our political system is broken now, but we can fix it. That's why we've partnered with Represent Us, a nonpartisan grassroots organization that has helped notch more than 160 victories to improve our elections and give power back to the voters where it belongs. Right now until November, there are many, many ways you can get involved. Represent Us is working in cities and states to pass good government policies like ranked choice voting. And they're also recruiting folks to help staff the polls. Let's protect our elections now and for generations to come. Visit represent.us slash pod to learn more. That's represent.us slash pod. I just, you know, here's the thing. He wore a Kefalar vest, right? Can you imagine what, can you imagine what would happen if Ilhan Omar went into the Capitol building, went, went, went to work and had a Kefalar vest on? They made jokes, right? Bobert made jokes about lying about getting on an elevator with her. Oh, I guess she doesn't have a backpack, so that's okay. They make jokes about terrorism while funding and connecting terrorists, right? And so we're all sitting around and we're asking ourselves, oh, well, how could it be? How could this happen? If there was even a hint of suspicion around black and brown members of Congress, around members of the Congressional Black Caucus are working with Obama to do something insidious, where do you think that those members would be? But you had Merrick Garland this week get up in front of the American people and lie to our faces and tell us this. He said that the threats that we're receiving are not partisan and have no and have no uh, perceived uh, one ideology. Are you kidding me? We saw people draped in MAGA hats and Trump and, and Trump flags that were yelling their savior's name, and you want and building a guillotine calling for the hanging. You have Republican members of Congress putting out graphic videos in depiction of killing their own colleagues. That is not happening on both sides. So how is it that you can talk about this insidious threat and then ignore who the one is that is wielding the sword? I, I, I don't understand how you think that you're going to capture these people when you refuse to identify and signal out the ideology that is allowing this to happen. But you know what also it is, is, is that American society and the majority and most of us is, is hijacked by the terror of Republicans. I'm using the word terror. I'll give you an example. What Republicans have openly said this week, Kevin McCarthy, I want to put minority leader in quotes, uh, is threatening social media companies. He says, if we get power, we're going to come after you uh, for, you know, literally following your own terms and engagements and getting this freak Marjorie Taylor Greene off of Twitter, right? So they're saying they're literally using threats of intimidation and violence on the ground saying, if you come after us and do your job and hold us to the standards that we demand everyone else follow, but we're not going to follow because we don't play by the rules, we're going to come after you. 
when we get power, we're going to crush you, Facebook. When we get power, we're going to crush you, Twitter. You better you better not come after us right now. We're going to remember this, right? They're literally saying these words, like Kevin McCarthy is saying this. He's threatening them. Ted Cruz has said, when we get power back, we're going to impeach Biden. Why? Just because. And so instead of simply saying, all right, mother effer, I'm going to take you on and punch you in the chin, the rest of us get cowed. We get cowed down. We get intimidated, which is part of the strategy, which is why on the local level, you see so many people quit school boards. When they quit school boards, yeah. who takes over? Right-wing nuts. When they when they quit running for office, who takes over? Right-wing nuts who are changing the laws at the state levels, the state legislatures. When it comes to uh, police force and, 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 and law enforcement, over 10 years ago, the FBI already said that white supremacist extremism has already infiltrated law enforcement, right? So we're so terrified. Corporate America's terrified. Okay. Healthcare ter- okay. people are terrified. Oh, what are they going to say? Oh, we're going to be seen as partisan. Oh, oh, Justice Department, They're gonna if we go after them, they're going to see us as partisan hacks. They already see you as partisan hacks. They already see you as the deep state. They already hate you. They're not that into you. No matter how much you bow down to them, they will hate you. That's the same thing with media. You and I have worked in the media. It's the same reason why CNN and all these other folks always give like a coveted position to this right-wing nut in New York yep. Times or Washington Post. Like I always say it's affirmative action for conservatives. You and I can never get away with this shit, right? But the reason why they do it is, oh, otherwise they will see us as being partisan. And they and if we give them this, they'll like us. Nope. You keep giving it to them, they'll keep taking it. And just like the peanut cartoon, they'll be like, you know, we're Charlie Brown Here's and they're people. Lucy. Yeah. You know, one of the things that also got me in Merrick Garland's uh, press conference um, was how he meticulously outlined the horrific attacks that we have seen over the past year. We have seen uh, school board people be threatened. We have seen journalists have their property destroyed. We He brought up the, uh, the, the judge whose son was murdered, right? When the attacker was going after her. We're talking about people protesting and threatening the lives of health officials, right? On Fox, they threatened to kill Fauci. They said, go out and get him and make it count. And so I, I, I just, he acknowledges that there is a rise in violence in this country, but refuses to say where that rise is coming from, refuses to say how it's happening. As Merrick Garland was talking, I don't know what Fox News was covering, but it sure as hell wasn't covering that, right? The insurrection. Like, you know, it's it's just, it to me, it, it feels like, you know, in Don't Look Up, Leonardo DiCaprio is, is sitting on the morning news station and he's looking at Kate Blanchett and, you know, a, a, and Tyler Perry. And he's just like, everything doesn't have to be so goddamn chipper. Some things just like suck and they just are what they are. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about white supremacy every day. I don't want to talk about the matrix of America and how we've all been spoon fed this lie of this country being the best that it is and who is to and who is to to champion because of that. But it's the reality. Right. It's the reality that we'd have no longer a two party system, that you have a death cult a white supremacist organization that has an entire media apparatus attached to it. I, I, th- I think what you're getting to is the frustration where it seems like what you want is, is you, we have to name something for what it is. And we can no longer view or see the Republican Party and the conservative movement as a normal 
political party within a two-party system of the old ways, right? The old ways are gone. And I think many of these people who are creatures of the swamp, old hands, are used to the backdoor dealings. They drink with like the Republican Party member, right? They, they, they meet with their kids. They realize that there's a performance in theater. And they sometimes think that this personal relationship will translate to partisanship, uh, bipartisanship and, and policymaking. Those days are gone. And people still feel like, oh, we have to be objective and we can't put our finger, you know, uh, in the middle. We have to just be uh, like referees, call balls and strikes. No, I think by not rising to the moment and calling something for what it is and accurately describing it so people like the majority can understand it, you are failing. You are abdicating your responsibility and your duty in the moment in every single institution by not calling out the GOP not as a normal political party, but as an actual authoritarian movement that, like a James Bond villain, is literally telling you what they want, minority rule. And when New York Times, in an editorial that came out earlier this week, for the first, it was a great editorial, but used this type of like strong language, which characterized the GOP's actions as authoritarian and anti-democratic, look, the rest of us were ecstatic. And I thought about that. I'm like, this is literally the lowest bar on earth. Like it took till 2022... <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, right? Like, even I was like, yay, New York Times editorial board, yay. And I'm like, holy shit. After all that we've witnessed, it took to 2022 and one editorial essay accurately describing the reality for what it is for us to feel ecstatic, which is nothing. It's 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 the lowest bar possible, which just shows you, it goes back to my earlier point, that the majority and its institutions, if we do not rise up in this moment before 2022 ends, before the midterm elections, we are at risk of losing our democracy. And so many people who are comfortable and powerful and rich and privileged think that it will be business as usual, think that the institution will protect them, think the guardrails will be maintained, and think that their Republican buddies won't go after them if they get power. Same folks thought that also in 1935, 1940 in Europe. Just saying. Mm. You know, there's a mass, you know, in, in the Wall Street Journal and everywhere, Bloomberg, they want to talk about the mass resignation, right? They want to talk about all of these people that are leaving uh, the workplace uh, as if it's the as if it's the problem of the workers as opposed to the work environments that they are being forced to work in, right? Where it's always the problem of the people. The people are lazy, right? And so they're resigning as opposed to the working conditions and the money that they're being paid and the lack of benefits has them thinking about the fact that maybe I don't want to risk my life during a fucking pandemic. Maybe I actually do want to switch jobs. But there's another mass resignation that actually isn't getting the type of attention that it should, which is the exodus of Democrats deciding not to run for re-election, right? There are um, at least 30-some-odd Democrats in the House that aren't coming back, right, who have been members of Congress for decades upon decades. And do you know what they are saying? They've had enough. They don't feel safe. And that's the thing that I want folks to, to think about. You know, they don't feel safe at work. So much in the same way that you have the restaurant worker and the hostess and the flight attendants and all of these people saying, guess what? I don't feel safe anymore. Like, unless we're going to name it and claim what is happening and why these people don't feel safe, why they are leaving these positions, like we're never going to get anywhere. It's terrorism, right? It's a type of nonviolent terrorism, which is uh, deliberately meant to intimidate and deliberately meant for you to acquiesce and uh, remove yourself 
And once they remove themselves, like I said, at the school board level, at the state level, in Congress, guess who comes in and takes that place? A zealous right-wing ideologue who's committed to minority rule. Lauren Bobart uh, did that bullshit story against Ilan Omar. The result? Death threats against Ilan Omar. The result? Lauren Bobart praised by the base, right? Paul Gosar, violent anime, tweeted against AOC. Censured due to Democratic majority rule. Republicans, not a word. And so imagine if you're AOC and Elon Omer, imagine any of us, right? You go to work, like I'm getting paid okay, I could get paid more, it's not my dream job, I gotta pay the bills. Oh, my coworker is threatening violence against me. Yep, I'm gonna come here in this shitty job, drive 45 minutes every day for a job that probably won't make me rich, won't give me 401k, kind of barely takes care of my healthcare. Yeah, I think I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna risk it for an employer who kind of doesn't care about me and my labor will increase productivity but won't increase wages, which is what we've seen since Reagan took over, that the workers in America are working themselves to death, the rich have gotten richer, none of that has trickled down, and I'm expected to just soldier on during a pandemic, and most of these resignations, the great migration, if you will, or exodus, uh, is low. Is this, this low-income sector job that was mocked and ridiculed by the new mayor of uh, of uh, oh my god the the new governor the new mayor oh, of my, New York, my city, yes, yeah, uh, uh, who who uh, you could tell is a rich man, and and you know I'm for the workers, and what I say is we have this two things when I think about this. It takes a near-death experience for people to wake up and realize what type of life they want to live, and I think people going through this pandemic are like it's just not worth it anymore. I value my life. I value my time. I value my talents. I deserve more. And number two, because of the pandemic, it's the first time in a long time, Danielle, that workers can flex. And I hope they flex. I hope they unionize. I hope labor improves. I hope they flex. And we're seeing it in uh, politics and prose right here. This this very famous, lovely bookstore, Mm -hmm. which hired this anti-union buster uh, uh, just recently to go after its employees who wanted to unionize. But in in the new year, uh, the workers seem to have won. And I feel like this needs to happen across the board in the next six months. The workers have this they have this small moment. We have this brief moment. We've got to take advantage of it. Just like for democracy, we've got a brief moment, like maybe a year. Uh, will we rise to the occasion? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I, I really don't. And, you know, in your piece that you wrote this week for The Daily Beast, which, you know, in the in doing the comparison... Between Victor Orban, who folks uh, is the president of Hungary, and you know, and the United States and the Republican Party and their love affair, their new fascination, right, with hailing uh, these foreign dictators who are who who literally perform democracy, right? It is pageantry to them, but it is actually not practice. And I, I want you to I want you to lift up some of the some of the things that you brought up in your piece because I think that it needs to be highlighted. This isn't coming from nowhere. There is a roadmap. And this is happening not just in the United States, but it's happening around the world that these dictators are all using the same playbook. 
and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, I yeah, I know I always touch a nerve uh, with the right wing is when they go after me for my articles or my appearances. And I, and I mentioned that they're a... Republican Party is a radicalized death cult and their end game is a minority rule. And I did this article and I got the wave of right wing after me after it was on Laura Ingram's show. And that's when you know. That's when you know that you've hit a nerve. And because then they then they do projection. We're not the authoritarians, you're the woke authoritarians, right? And so the reason with the anniversary of, of January 6th, I decided to say, well, what's the end game? The blueprint is right there in Europe, hungry. Uh the reason why I did that is I want to kind of show people, especially those who don't know. What will happen when Republicans gain power? I take them literally and I take them seriously and I connect the dots and I listen to them. Earlier this week, President Trump gave fulsome praise and support to Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, who's been in rule since 2010. Under his rule over the past 10 years, it has become like a single party rule where uh, he has chipped away systematically at democratic institutions. And now Hungary is no longer considered a normal democracy. It's considered a hybrid regime. Like you said, the pageantry of democracy. It has the veneer of democracy, but he's purged the judiciary, installed loyalists, curbed press freedoms, literally changed textbooks. Does this sound familiar? Gone after uh, gone after any liberal critics, defunded NGOs. And unlike conservatives, Hungary has invested in culture, theater, and arts to promote propaganda, right? And so Orban in 2015, especially with the refugee crisis, realized, aha, I can run with xenophobia, anti-Muslim bigotry, and anti-Semitism, tie that type of religious nationalism to this type of xenophobic populism, and that's my beautiful cocktail to warn the European Hungarians quote, quote, white Christians, that's what they're talking about, that they're going to be replaced by these brown Muslim savages and hordes, some of the languages that he used. Around that time, Steve Bannon said, Orban was Trump before Trump. Let me repeat this. Orban was Trump before Trump. Trump And in 2018, after he got kicked out, he did a tour of Europe, Steve Bannon, where he he went and visited all these far-right groups in France, right, and, and, and Hungary. And he said, the guy on the scene, the hero is Orban. Tucker Carlson, last fall, Tucker Carlson, host of the highest rated show on Fox News, decides to host his show from Budapest in Hungary. What? Where he praises Orban, Orban's policies, Orban's border fence, uh, you know, because it's a landlocked country, and says, we can learn a thing or two from here. And Rod Dare, he went on the advice of American, uh, an American conservative writer, Rod Dare, who had a fellowship there and said, aha, what Viktor Orban is doing is taking a strong stance against wokeism and preserving the cultural integrity and heritage of this country. All of that is doing a lot of work for simply saying he's helping white Christians stay in power. And Mike Pence went there for a conference. Jeff Sessions went there for a conference. CPAC is having their conference there. They're literally telling you, this is this what is, we this want is what we in America. Want. Boom. And then, and then you come back to America and we have 
journalists and anchors that are sitting on television saying, I wonder what the Republican Party is up to. I wonder what it is that they're going to be doing. I wonder what they mean when they're, you know, going to court on gerrymandering. There's a case right now, folks, that everybody should be watching in North Carolina before a three panel judge that is going to decide whether or not the redistricting, right? The redrawing of the map that is happening in North Carolina is going to be upheld because guess what? They've added three new Republican seats and taken away three Democratic seats and made it damn near impossible that even if you have a majority of the votes, even if you cast more numbers as a Democrat, you will not win. So I, I, I say this to say, as you list out all of these things, this is not rocket science. We don't need a House commission or an investigation to show us where the Republican Party is going because they are telling us. They tell us each and every single day, every day that they gaslight us, every day that they try and ignore the fact that 1-6 happened and can easily do it because Fox News tells us that it didn't happen. Fox News tells us that it is it was a it was a, a bunch of tourists that were just overzealous. Haven't you ever gotten excited? That you was actually that was rep that was Representative uh, Andrew Clyde, a Republican who was barricaded along with his colleagues, you know, terrified for his life on January 6th. And because the base, which is radicalized, now runs the party, he later on said, oh, it was just a normal tourist visit. It was just a normal tourist visit. And I'm thinking to myself. I feel insane. And I know that the people that are listening to democracy ish, I know that you feel crazy because you're like, why is nobody doing anything? It, it, this, we don't need a superhero. All we needed were our representatives to act on our behalf, to not drag their feet for 365 days and tell us that they don't have enough intel in order to make the credible arrests that they have yet to make. There was a PowerPoint presentation, a war room. Members of Congress wearing Teflar vests. The war room at Willard Hotel just, with, with congressmen coming. Uh, it wasn't just like these lackeys. It was activists, uh, scholars, lawyers, congressmen. What who what congressmen? Who knew what and when? Jim Jordan, Matt Gates. I want to know more, right? You have you have the text messages now. Sean Hannity's text messages came out, which shows how they sell just bullshit to their audience and radicalize them, where he is begging Donald Trump apparently to let it go. But now he, what does he do? Fox News, Fox News aggressively still promotes the big lie. So with all this evidence, you're just sitting there and you're like, uh, how is it impossible that even a guy like me, who's no longer a practicing attorney, can look at this and be like, you can get an indictment just based on the evidence that I know. <laughs> you, know you know, and I, I have said this so many times on Twitter and I have written about it so many times, but I will be remiss if I don't say it again. Khalif Browder, a 16-year-old black boy in New York City in 2014, was picked up by police on suspicion that he stole a backpack. The backpack was not on his person. It was the suspicion that he had the backpack. He was picked up and he was thrown into Rikers for three years in solitary confinement, would later kill himself after he was released without a trial, without any conviction, just oops, right? And killed himself because of the trauma that he faced. The oops happens a lot to poor people, especially poor black folks and brown folks in this country. Oops, we destroyed your life. Oops, My bad. We destroyed your life. We destroyed the life of your family. And what, what gets me all the time is that word suspicion. There was just the suspicion of there being theft. There was real theft, a real attempt to steal our democracy on 1-6. 
And it was written in text messages, in PowerPoint presentations, created an entire war room around it. And there's not enough to get an indictment. There's not enough to pull those members of Congress that we suspect were involved and they're still getting to go to work and vote, vote on policies for the American people. It's good, it's good to be a white terrorist. You were seen as a lone wolf. I mean, look, you know, it's a really uh, poignant point that you made there because suspicion is what killed uh, Trayvon. Suspicion is what killed Mike Brown, a kid. Suspicion is what killed uh, the the one that just, just, I mean, all of them are painful, but uh, Tamir Rice, just this kid playing with a toy gun. And the police officer was like within three seconds, parked his car, got out, shot him, killed him. The 12-year-old boy, you look at his photo and you're like, oh my God, it's just heartbreaking. Uh, suspicion is what caused Massive surveillance of Muslim communities in New York, a total waste of resources, time, and money, where they went after Muslim American students in college campuses, Muslim women who wore hijabs, Muslim men who had beards. That was the suspicious threat. I'm, I'm serious. You guys think I'm joking. They had a list of radicalizing elements, and in, in there included speaking Arabic, praying, wearing hijab, <laughs> eating halal meat, be, shopping be, in halal stores. Muslim. Yeah, being Muslim. That was That was enough suspicion for the NYPD to carve out an entire unit for years to do warrantless surveillance, to, to embed uh, mosque rakers, uh, you know, to do entrapment. And yet we got white supremacist terrorism and we got their allies literally in Congress openly admitting to their plot, Pete Navarro, this was yesterday, ladies and gentlemen, Pete Navarro on MSNBC. Ari Melber, just go look at that clip. Literally is describing a coup. He's playing the game taboo. He's saying, he's basically saying to coup without saying coup. And Ari did a great job, let him ramble enough. Sometimes you give people enough rope to hang themselves. And then he kind of said, yeah, so you're talking about a coup. And, and, and Navarro said that there were 100 congressmen, 100 Republican congressmen. So, so this is, we're not dealing with a one-off. We're not dealing with some bad actors. We're not dealing with some bad apples. We're dealing with a corrupt, poisoned, radicalized, conservative movement. And how does a country, especially a democracy, survive? when the majority does not recognize it and name a threat for what it is and doesn't look up. You know, I, I tell you that James Baldwin called it moral apathy. Moral apathy is what we are fighting against right now because we have an entire party that is telling you to look down. We have an entire party that has created this matrix that has created the rules. And every time, that there is achievement or recognition or the opening of the eyes, they want to shut it down. They want to burn books. They want to roll back voting. They want to close down schools. We are in the fight for our lives. And I just, I need people to recognize that, that this isn't a normal partisan battle. This isn't a, a battle of ideas. Right. Joe Biden came into came into, you know, the presidency on this idea that he was going to restore the moral fabric of these United States. And a year later. I don't feel restored. Uh, and I also feel like, you know, if you get into, if you want to go into pop culture, you mentioned uh, don't uh, don't look up, which is the Netflix movie that we're talking about, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, uh, directed by Adam McKay. Uh, which was divisive, and I think it was divisive because it was a little bit on the nose, and a lot of people within our industries got really pissed off. It shows you this type of incestuous network between media, politics, and money. It does it really well. And it shows you the revolving door. 
And having been in this industry, these industries, and Daniel's been in it, we could tell that's how it works. They're all buddies. They all sleep with each other. They date each other. They're friends. They go to the same parties, same cocktails, pat each other on the back. And for them, it's like, okay, we're still colleagues. We're still civil. And I think as, as human beings, you know, just these relationships impair your judgment, impair your objectivity. And because you have the person's text phone, you've seen them at church, you've seen them at synagogue, you go golfing with them, you, you slept with them before. You know, you, you want to sleep with them. And as such, you're like, oh, it can't be that bad. Let me pull my punches. And I saw those uh, punches being pulled when I was at CNN for a year. Like, I never pull my punches. But in the green room, we were always told, oh, to be civil. I'm like, I'm always civil. You never see me raise my voice, but I'll call something for what it is. And then I had, like, you know, the conservatives uh, go after me four times complaining to my superiors. Oh, he wasn't civil enough. I got, like, four warnings, which is hilarious. But that's kind of the, what you're saying is we're, we're, we're dealing with people in power and people with influence who benefit from the status quo and have tunnel vision because they are incapable of seeing the threat because they think they will be protected. And the problem is that the rich, in my opinion, are their own tribe. The rich will yep. always protect their own. The rich unite regardless of ethnicity, political affiliation, national origin, or gender. And what you're seeing is the institutions and the rich and powerful folks in those institutions, in this incestuous network, thinking that it could be kumbaya, whereas the rest of us who have not had the privilege of that protection, trying to sound the alarm to save our democracy. That's where I think that's what that's the disconnect that I think you're describing why there's a disconnect. I just, you know, folks, we are going to do our best on this next iteration of democracy ish to connect those very needed connected dots so that folks understand that this is this isn't coming out of nowhere. The insurrection didn't just pop up on one six. Right. Our democracy isn't just crumbling, you know, because of one administration. It is on a free fall because of a series, a series of events that went overlooked. Folks, thank you for listening to Democracy Ish. I am Danielle Moody. I am Wajat Ali. And we will be back next week, God willing, if we God still willing, have a country. <laughs>